you. It's uh, very good to be here again. Um, some of you may remember me, but I was here probably when this, you first came to this building. I think it was shortly after that. So I'm not sure the exact date when you came to the building, but if you were here when the church came to this building, then perhaps uh, you might remember me. But uh, it's a great privilege for, for me to be here, for us to be here. Um, I've known Steve Brandon for, and Yvonne for about uh, 20 years, I'm guessing, maybe a little bit longer than that. I think I first met him back around uh, sometime around the late nine, mid to late 90s, somewhere in there. But I uh, have always admired Steve uh, for his love for the Lord and his love for the Word. And just uh, he faithfully opens it, and I know that's why many of you are here. And so it's, it is a joy to come here, and uh, we want to thank you from Leadership Resources for your encouragement, your prayers, your gifts. Uh, it is a great blessing. Uh, I've been in Nepal and seen some of the fruit of your efforts and prayers, and I've been with those men there and uh, am greatly encouraged by the progress I'm seeing in their lives. That work continues through the key graduates as we work with them in an intensive training for about a four, another four-year period, and as we take them and work together at establishing new first-generation sites of training more pastors. So it, uh, the work really does continue on. In fact, it was in Singapore. There's a church there that also supports the work in Nepal, and uh, they said they want to be able to give more to that effort because they're seeing it in the context of their broader work in Nepal and how the raising of leaders and pastors is establishing maturity in that broader work that they're doing. And so uh, it was a great encouragement to us. And I know you guys have moved to India. You're supporting the work there. And uh, it's just a joy uh, to partner with you in that way. So thank you uh, very much for your gifts. Um, I don't need to say too much about my family. We do have one other daughter. She's not with us. And uh, actually, she's married, and she's going to make us grandparents in late September. So if you've had that experience already. You can come up to me afterwards and let me know how I should be feeling and reacting and what you do and don't do as a grandparent. So I'm open to plenty of advice on that. Uh, I want to take you to uh, the book of Ephesians, a book that we were in just a few moments ago. And um, in particular, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And I want to read this, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then begin to dive into it. But Ephesians 1.15, through the end of the chapter, verse 23, it says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers." that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of his might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to be together as your people sitting before you as we open your word. And I pray, Father, that the, uh, the Spirit, your Spirit, would be at work within us to grow us, to strengthen us in faith, to give us eyes to see the wonder of who you are and all you have for us as your people. May you fill us with all of your fullness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by telling you a couple of stories that occurred. One takes me all the way back to when I started with Leadership Resources in 2002. And uh, we were headed to the country of Myanmar or Burma. And uh, there had been a training going on there for a couple of years. And my uh, colleague, my uh, boss actually, Craig Perrow, the president of LRI, uh, he was the international director at that time. And I was going along with him to observe the work going on. And as uh, we went, he informed me that he had supposed to have been raising money uh, for this group so that they could carry out their second-generation trainings. They needed some seed funding to help them uh, continue the training, to multiply the training uh, after we were with them, and then we would return home. Then they would go out and do their trainings. And uh, he didn't have the money that he needed, and he felt really badly about this, I could see. And so as he explained this to the men, he, he said, man, he says, uh, I know I, I promised you that I would have, um, have the funds available. And uh, he says, I feel terrible about this, but I just don't have the funds. And I, I can leave you with what I have, but uh, I'm just sad to say we're not going to have all the funding that we need. And uh, they just looked at us and said, we need to pray. That was their natural knee-jerk response. We need to pray. I thought to myself, that's obvious. <laughs> we need to pray. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so often in the West, we, uh, we miss out on something so important. And in many non-Western or many developing countries, this is the knee-jerk reaction. Our knee-jerk reaction is, well, I need to work harder. I need to work an extra day for the company or I need to go to the doctor, or I need to talk to a friend, or I need to, and we have all these answers that we fill in that blank with, but they said, we need to pray. A few years later, we were doing some work in Vietnam, and uh, God used the book of Jonah in a very uh, extraordinary way. I don't say unusual because uh, we've seen him do this so often with the book of Jonah. But perhaps you have studied this book and you realize that the main thing about this book isn't so much the fact that the Ninevites repent as the fact that God is wooing Jonah to share his heart with him. God has a huge heart of mercy and compassion. And we find out at the end in chapter 4 that Jonah says, this is why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. He didn't want God's heart of compassion for the worst of his enemies, the Ninevites. And so chapter 4 is all about how God draws Jonah to himself and leaves us with that powerful question at the end. He says, 
There are 120,000 people in this city. They don't know their left hand from their right. Should I not be concerned? And that question just lingers. Should I not be concerned? What is God saying to Jonah? Jonah, aren't you concerned with me? We were teaching this book, and uh, at the end of the session, one fellow we called James. James uh, said, guys, you need to pray for me. He said, I'm, I'm worse than Jonah. He said, I, I come before my accusers. I'm brought in before the police, and they interrogate me. And uh, I sit on the other side of the table, hoping that they are damned to hell. He said, uh, I now know that I can't wish that for them anymore. Would you pray for me? And so we did. We gathered around him. We prayed for him and uh, went went away from the country, came back six months later, and uh, we heard reports about what God did because in between our visits, uh, they have to go and train other leaders, other sets of pastors. And so James, God had given him a ministry in the Central Highlands of Vietnam And uh, he went up there and he began to uh, do his training. And at the end of the week, uh, he said the same thing that we typically say, how has God been at work in your life through the study of this book? And uh, they said to James, you know, we've been stingy with the gospel. We have been uh, keeping it to ourselves, to our own tribe. We've not been reaching out to other tribes around us. He said, we need to organize. And so they organized an evangelistic campaign. And uh, in that initial effort of reaching out to these other tribes, 85 people came to Christ. Uh, We've since tracked that work, actually lost track of it maybe three, four years ago, but uh, five churches were established out of that original group, and one of the churches was up to 125 members in the church. If you were to come along and visit one of those churches, you'd like this, you'd say, oh, people sitting around and... They love the Lord, and they love His Word. Isn't that terrific? And you would be blessed by that ministry. But look beneath the surface. What actually happened? What actually happened was a a guy named James went to that area, and he opened the Word of God because he had been changed by the power of God's Word in prayer. And if you look further, you'd go back to the other city where we met originally, and God did a special work in James' heart. So James' transformation was transferred to the others in the Central Highlands, and that caused this work of God to take place, or it was the means that God used for that work to take place. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? Here you have the marriage, the marriage of the word and of prayer. I wonder how often we think of that. The Word and Prayer. And I want to take a look this morning at this book of Ephesians and challenge us with this thought that spiritual transformation takes place as we hear the Word and read the Word and as we pray over that Word. The growth that's going to take place in your life is a combination of those two things fundamentally hearing the Word of God, and praying about that Word of God and bringing it into your life. And so this morning, we want to look at this passage 
And I want you to think about the power of prayer. And it has to do with this idea of seeing God and savoring God. It, it really brings us back to that most fundamental relationship of who He is and what He has done for us in Christ. I want to think about this book, first of all, in its overarching story. Then a particular challenge that comes at the close of the book. And then we're going to work our way back to this prayer in verse 15 to 23. If you want to understand this book very briefly, you need to look at probably three verses. One is verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's, it's a book of praise, isn't it? Right from the outset, Paul is glorifying God. He's, he's honoring Him. He's full of joy, and he expresses this in the form of, of a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's going to go on to iterate those blessings in the verses that follow, just leading up to this prayer. We may come back to that after a bit. So it's a book of praise to God for all He has given us in Christ, but it moves further. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What is that calling? It is these blessings that he has spoken about in chapter 1, verse 3. So we have been blessed. It's a call to walk worthy, but there's something more. Chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So we're called upon to stand firm in the Lord. We're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Paul calls us on the basis of that to walk worthy of the Lord. And then chapter 6, to stand firm in the Lord. If we're going to walk worthy and stand firm in the Lord, the logic of Paul is we need to see and grasp those blessings that are ours in Christ. It's the way he set this up. He tells us about these blessings we have in Christ. Then he calls us to walk worthy. Then he says, stand firm in it. Now, this this in and of itself is is powerful for the Christian life, if you understand this. The only way you're going to walk worthy and stand firm in Christ is if your mind is fixed on the blessings that are ours in Christ. We're going to go into that in just a minute, as I say. And the other thing I want you to see as we begin is in chapter 6, verse 10, we're called to stand firm in the Lord. And then he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he says. And as he continues through this, we come down to verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. That combination of word and prayer here. So standing firm, key to this, and actually the climax to it, is the Word of God. It's power in our lives and prayer. He says, look at the way he says this, praying at all times in the Word of God, or in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, To the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 
Are you getting the emphasis? Praying all the time for all the saints, for making all prayers and supplications, all, all, all. Okay, this is how important prayer is to the Christian life. But so often our prayers are very limited, perhaps to health concerns. God is concerned that we pray for our health. Or they are limited to the problem I'm facing in the moment and asking God to remove that problem. God isn't always concerned to remove that particular problem. But I want you to see the power of prayer in chapter 1, verse 15. Now, somebody very astutely read the prayer in chapter 3, verse 14. That mere fact that Paul is weaving prayer into this letter It shows us the importance of the word and of prayer in the Christian life. So I want you to think for a minute about what do you struggle with? What do you struggle with most in your life? What do you struggle with as you seek to walk with the Lord faithfully before Him? This book in chapter 4, 5, and 6 gives us a number of things to reflect on talks about the unity within the church. Is there a relational struggle that you're having with somebody else in the body of Christ? Perhaps it's with a non-Christian at work or in the neighborhood or on the school board. Uh, Perhaps, uh, husbands, you're struggling to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Anybody else other than me honest enough to admit that? At times, that's a struggle. Uh, Wives, perhaps you're having struggle submitting to your husband as to the Lord, as this book calls us to. Uh, Children, how are you doing in obeying your parents? Parents and fathers in particular, do you exasperate your children? Or do you raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? See, this book, Ephesians, talks about all of these things. And up front... Paul is showing us the blessings that we have in Christ, and he's going to do something very special in chapter 1, verse 15. does it again in 3.14. He prays, and he comes back to this thought of the Word of God and prayer and its power in our lives to enable us to walk worthy and to stand firm in the Lord. This is the power of prayer. So let's come back to Ephesians 1 and look at this. He says in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. This is the reason Paul is going into this prayer. Uh, This is the reason that Paul continues to write. He's thinking back about what he has just said in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, and these great blessings that he outlines. Blessings such as verse 4, being chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Or the blessing of verse 5, being predestinated for adoption as children of the living God. Or you can drop down and see more blessings that he iterates in verse 7. Redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Not only are we chosen, not only are we adopted into the family of God, He has forgiven us of our sins. 
Any sin that you have committed, it is not too great for him to forgive. Any sin that you will yet commit, it's already been forgiven in Christ. We can breathe a sigh of relief. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or think down in verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance. We have an inheritance. Let your mind just think about that for a minute. As you look forward to the future, you have an inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the blessing in verse 13. The Holy Spirit, we've been sealed with Him, and He is the down payment guaranteeing that inheritance. So God, if you are His child, He has given you His Spirit. And that, that gift that He has given to you is, is just a taste of all that is to come, but it is a guarantee of all that is yet to come in your inheritance. These are the rich blessings that are ours in Christ. Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. This is shorthand for saying Christian. It's another way of putting it. Faith and love. Faith, heavenward. Faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Love, horizontal. Love toward fellow believers. The saints that are in Christ. And if you are a Christian, you have these twin qualities in your life. You have a faith in the Lord Jesus. There was a point in which you believed and trusted in Him, placing your confidence in Him. And there is a love you have for all who claim the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And Paul recognizes this about the Ephesians. He says, You are part of what I have just been talking about. In verse 13, he had said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Previously, Paul had been talking in the first person plural. In him we. But now he switches that to the second person plural. In him you also. So he's saying you were included in this. And then immediately he goes into verse 15, for this reason. So all of these blessings that are ours in Christ lead Paul to this prayer that begins in verse 15. And he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul's attitude toward those who are in Christ is one of exceeding thanksgiving. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Do you rejoice over the work of Christ in the life of others. I think that is one of, the, one of the great blessings and curses of being a pastor or a Christian leader or Sunday school teacher. You, you get to see both the highs and the lows of people's lives. You, you get to see when that child comes to faith and your heart rejoices. And uh, the curse side of this is you get to see when that disgruntled person leaves the church and uh, they pour out their... Uh, concerns on you. But it is a joy, isn't it? And so when we see God's work in the lives of people, this should create this sense of thanksgiving. And that's what it does for Paul. And that thanksgiving then drives him in his prayers. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
I wonder if we share this quality with Paul. Uh, Unceasing thanksgiving that drives us into prayer for people around us. Paul is uh, a model for us, but it is his particular prayer. It is what he desires for the Ephesians that is so striking here. He says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now it is clear, these two statements, that He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is not to say Jesus is not divine, but certainly in Jesus' humanity, He is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said this on on the cross, uh, my Lord and my God, or my God, why have you forsaken me? And it shows us the Father of glory, that is, the one who is working out all these blessings in chapter 1 to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, a constant refrain. And it is the participation in that glory that is what the Christian heart longs for. So this, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, what does He actually pray for them? What does He desire for the Ephesians? That He may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Let's just break this up for a minute. He is praying to God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He is praying that He, this God, may give them, the Ephesians, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That is, that they will go deep and they will expand. He's a wisdom, they will go deep in their understanding, revelation, that their knowledge of Him will expand and grow over time. Now, you are in the days here where the canon of Scripture, that is, the books that are in the New Testament, are not yet completed. And he is asking that God would give to the Ephesians a understanding, that is, a depth, and revelation, new understanding, that is, expand what they know of God, uh, particularly focused around God the Father. Now, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because Paul began the book with this praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he then says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So there is the objective, objective to us, the Spirit of God, what God does, growing wisdom, growing understanding. There is the subjective, what's happening within us. And these two are married together. The Spirit of God is doing His work, to open the eyes of the heart, and that's precisely what is happening within us. Have you ever thought that uh, you are blind until you can see? That is the spiritual experience. It doesn't take you very far into this book before you realize this. Chapter 2, and you were dead in, the trespass, in your trespasses and sins. Then verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead 
in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, this divine miracle occurs for every one of us that can be described as having faith in the Lord Jesus and a love toward all the saints. You were dead, but God made you alive. I don't know if you have been to, uh, to any funerals, but I have never seen anyone get up. I've never seen it happen yet. But spiritually, that is what happens here. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. The same thing is true about the eyes of your heart. Isn't that a wonderful expression? Did you know your heart had eyes? Well, not literally, right? Paul is giving us an image here. It's an image of sight, perception, apprehension. We would use words like that to describe it. So what Paul is doing is he's just laid out all these blessings that are ours in Christ, and it's as if he's saying, I know you're never going to believe this. I know you can't take it in. I know it's so far beyond you. And so you know what? I'm going to pray that God would do his divine work in your human heart so that the two of those things, as they come together, will allow you to see and to take hold of. This is a powerful thing, isn't it? There's a wonderful story in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6 about uh, Elisha. And the king of Syria is, uh, is coming down. He's breathing down the necks of the Israelites. And so he is uh, going to attack the king of Israel. And he sets a place that he's going to attack. And then Elisha receives a word from the Lord. And he tells the king of Israel, don't go to that place. The king of Syria is going to be there. So the king of Israel avoids that place. And the king of Syria goes back scratching his head. This happens at least a couple of times. He can't figure it out. And he says to his, uh, his soldiers and uh, commanders, he says, all right, who's for the king of Israel here? One of his men speak up. Say, hey, nobody's for the king of Israel. Uh, but here's the problem. There's a man named Elisha. And every time you are in your bedroom thinking your thoughts about how you're going to attack, God is revealing it to him. And so he tells the king of Israel, that's the problem here. So then the king of Syria says, okay, let's take some troops down. Let's take all of our soldiers down, and we're going to uh, deal with this man, Elisha. So they go down to where Elisha is in Dothan, and they surround Elisha. And uh, Elisha's um, understudy goes out, and he, he sees this army outside their door, a huge army. And uh, he comes back in, and he says, Elisha, what are we supposed to do? And Elisha says, don't be afraid. It's the first thing out of his mouth. Wow. Don't be afraid. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, how about you? Don't be afraid? The most powerful king in the world with all... That's like, it's like having uh, drones staring you in the face, and you know some guy's back there controlling it, and it's behind that is the whole power of the United States Army, and they're at your door. And Don't be afraid? Well, why not? Because Elisha says, those that are with us outnumber them. And then he prays. He prays for his understudy. He prays, God, would you open his eyes and enable him to see? And he is doing that. And the understudy, he looks out again, and he sees in all the surrounding mountains hundreds and thousands. 
and chariots of fire. And his eyes are opened to life as it really is. And that's the work of God that we need in our lives. Perhaps that story reminds you of the story it reminded me of uh, out of the Lord of the Rings series. And you might remember where Aragorn has to go into the mountain and deal with those that have died and forsook their promise to support, I forget who it was in the past, but anyway, these, um, he calls to the dead and they come out and they finally go with him and there's this wonderful scene, I think it's at the Battle of Minas Tirith at the end, where uh, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, they're there and they're, they're ready to jump off this ship and they, they pull up and the enemy is there and they, they look at them because they realize these aren't guys that are with us. And then what happens? They, Aragorn says something like, we're going to kill you. And uh, they look back, you and who else? And then all of a sudden, it's revealed. You see all of those who have died and have come back to fight. And there are hundreds and there are thousands of them. And they sweep over the enemy like it's nothing. Maybe you remember that scene. It's pretty amazing. But this is what needs to happen for you and me. Our eyes need to be open to see things as they really are. And that's what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is Paul's great desire for them, is that they could see. They could see. Do you remember the story of the blind beggars? (laughs) Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And they keep calling out and people say, quiet, quiet. You know, you shouldn't be disturbing him. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus says, what do you want? We want to see. We want to see. Is that the cry of your heart this morning? God, I want to see. I'm struggling in my relationship with a coworker. I'm struggling in my relationship with my spouse or, or with my parents. I, I can't get past this. There's a blockage there for me. God, I want to see. <laughs> and what in particular... Does Paul want them to see? There are three things here that he mentions, and I think each one of these is powerful enough, but in combination, it's overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That you may know what is the hope. Hope is a powerful thing. Without hope, people shrivel up and die. But hope is a powerful, powerful force. And there is no greater hope anywhere than in the Christian faith. It is the hope which is summed up in these blessings in chapter 1, verse 3 to 14, that we are chosen, that we are adopted into his family. We are truly forgiven and redeemed. We have an inheritance, and the Holy Spirit is with us now, guaranteeing that inheritance that is to come. 
our minds would do well to reflect on the hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are feeling low, you're feeling as if your hope is at a low, raise your hope quotient. Read the book of Revelation. Discover again that, yes, at the end of time, Jesus wins. There are no contenders left standing. And the great hope that is ours, the beautiful picture we have there of the new heaven and new earth, and of finally the last gasp of the universe, it doesn't end in death. It ends in our union with Christ before God Himself. What an amazing hope that we have. Paul wants us to know the hope to which God has called us. You want to see change and transformation in your life? Reflect on this God who has given you this Christian hope. Or, he says, uh, secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? If the first one deals with our destiny, a destiny full of hope, this one deals with our identity. This is an interesting expression. It's not perhaps what you expect. In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul had been talking about the inheritance that we have. We have been given an inheritance. But notice here, he does something interesting and he switches the expression. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You are the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You're his inheritance. And he describes it as being rich. Saints who are redeemed. Saints who are brought into this kind of relationship with the Father. Saints that are chosen and adopted and forgiven and blessed with the Holy Spirit and given the inheritance. They are his inheritance and he deems it rich. Maybe you're struggling with issues of self-identity. I think particularly young people go through a phase where this is the great question of life. Who am I? Who am I and what am I doing here in the world? You now know the way God looks at you. God looks at you as his inheritance and he deems it rich. Isn't that powerful to think about God that way? To think that God has not only given you a destiny, but he has given you an identity as part of his inheritance. It is rich for him. And then there's a third one here. The third one is this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now already, just in that description there, you're thinking, wow, this must be pretty great. Immeasurable greatness of his power? Paul is piling word upon word to capture our imaginations. Uh, It's beyond comprehension in truth. And that's why he piles word upon word because he can't get to the end of it. It's immeasurable. 
It's great. It's immeasurably great power. And so he goes on to describe it. He's not going to leave it to the imagination for long. He says, it's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's immeasurably great power. He worked it in Christ when he raised him from the dead. But it, not, it doesn't stop there. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. That is immeasurably great power. And that's the power that is at work within you and me. How do I know? Well, he says it. Beyond that, you're sitting here this morning. We already saw in chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made you alive. If you are here and you have faith in the Lord Jesus and you have a love toward the saints, I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying your, your faith has reached such a state that you never have any doubts that arise. I'm not saying that you love everyone to the degree that you need to. But if you are here and you're looking up and you're looking around and you enjoy it, you're a Christian. And you're a Christian because God has made you a Christian. You're a Christian because His power like the power that raised Jesus to life, is the power that raised you to life. And that power is still working in you and will continue to do so until the very end. That's amazing. I go back to the first part of this prayer where Paul says, I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Maybe we understand that a little bit better now. This, this hope, it, it's just amazing, this destiny we have. The identity, the way God looks at us is the riches of His inheritance. It's hard to get my mind around that. The power that He says is at work within me beyond words, isn't it? And yet, that's the God we serve. That's what God has given us. And Paul is praying that we will grasp those things because he wants us to walk worthy of him and to stand firm in him. Living out our lives, <laughs> learning Husbands, how to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Learning, wives, how to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. Learning, children, how to love your parents or parents, how to raise your children in the nurture and admission of the Lord. Or learning how to get along with one another in the body of Christ. We need the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. We need to see and to savor the living God.
Please join me in prayer. Father, I pray this morning that uh, your word would exercise its power in our lives. I pray prayer would become a knee-jerk reaction. Prayer would become the cry of our heart for your change in our lives. Because we know we struggle. We know we need you to do a divine work within us. So often our eyes are upon what we see around us. We can become discouraged and frustrated, confused, disheartened, and we need to see more of you. And I pray, Father, that uh, even this day that you, by your spirit of wisdom and revelation, would work in such a way as to open the eyes of our heart so that we will see the hope which you've called us. We will see the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. We will see your power, which is at work in us, that great power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him above all rule and authority and gave him a name above every name. Would you open our eyes, Father, we pray. Help us to grow in you and to take Paul's uh, command to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and to pray always. Pray always. Help us to take His command seriously. How much we need You. We not only needed You to open our eyes and to make us alive to Christ, but we need You to continue to grow us in Christ. And we pray we would turn to You not relying on self, which is our natural disposition, but turn to You and rely upon You for this great work in our lives. We pray it, we seek it, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name.